1: Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this extra episode, for fans of his legal thrillers, author Scott Turow needs no introduction. When he gets up in the morning, he puts his pants on one leg at a time like the rest of us. Then he writes best-selling novels. If you haven't joined the fan club, know that Turow is unusual in that he became a writer, then a lawyer, then stayed with both professions. Tro's new novel is The Last Trial. The protagonist is Alejandro Sandy Stern, a frequent side character in many Turow novels. Stern, a brilliant defense attorney on the verge of retirement, is pulled into a final case he can't refuse. Here, KUOW's Ross Reynolds interviews Turow about a wide range of topics, including his new work, the varied arcs of his career, and former President Trump's legal prospects. The University Bookstore presented this event on February 4th.
2: Scott, a great pleasure to be speaking with you tonight about uh, the last trial. And also, I'd like to talk about your legal career and so many things to discuss with you. Um, The last trial was written to be perhaps the definite swan song for one of your uh, most well-known characters, Alejandro Sandy Stern. Um, I'm sure those of who are watching, who are familiar with your work, know him. But how many years and novels have you spent writing about Sandy Stern?
0: Well, Sandy Stern sort of materialized in my imagination while I was writing Presumed Innocent. So I'm guessing around 1983, 1984. And um, Save One Book set, uh, before, uh, he reached the United States, uh, as a little boy, uh, he's appeared in the background or the foreground of every one of the novels that I've written since then. And, uh, usually it's just a cameo. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, sometimes he makes a critical appearance as the fifth business. Um, as you know, he did in a novel called personal injuries where, Played a critical role late in the book, but usually, uh, you know, he's always been there. And
2: uh... well, in the, in the last trial, Stern is an eighty-five-year-old cancer survivor with multiple physical ailments, and as the title implies, this will be his last trial. Should we assume from the title that Sandy Stern will not be returning in any of your subsequent novels, or are we going to do another flashback and return him to the stage?
0: Yeah, that that doesn't, you know, his. He certainly is not going to try any more cases, having, um, at, as readers will know by the end of the book, um, but that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, there couldn't be a prequel in which, you know, we Sandy's big case in, you know, 1979, so I never say never about any of these things. I, I think, I think I have, um, you know, said goodbye to Stern as the central character, but We'll all, you, know,
2: you live and you learn. A, a lot of the book is uh, Sandy ruminating about his courtroom career at 85. You're 70 now, is that right?
0: Yeah, 71.
2: And, and so. you mentioned that you just uh, retired from practicing commercial law. Yeah. Uh, do you think about how much longer you've got it in you to practice law?
0: Well, um, I, I'm pretty much withdrawn from, I mean, this is the only time uh, that I can remember where I don't have a case pending somewhere. So uh, that wouldn't keep me from taking a pro bono matter that I thought was interesting. And, you know, my law license and, and malpractice insurance is still intact, but I'm, I'm you know, I pretty much stepped back.
2: Is it nice to not have a case that you're working on or is that a little making you, you nudgy?
0: Um You know, it's got upsides and downsides. I I think for the most part, um, you know, I was seasoned to the annoyance of, you know, the Friday afternoon phone call from the client who's had something on his desk all week and finally remembers on Friday afternoon that, well, I better call the lawyers about that so that it becomes their problem for the weekend. So I'm, I'm not sorry to be done with that. But, you know. I I had a great career as a lawyer and did a lot of interesting things.
2: You create wonderful plots out of your characters, of course. And then the material is the evidence and trial procedure. What are the ways that your courtroom experience kind of informs your fiction?
0: Well, I started out, Ross, with the thesis that what happens in court is exciting enough that it doesn't need to be faked. Um, you know it's compressed, obviously, but you know a, an exciting cross-examinations and a really exciting moment. Uh, and so I've tried to always hew to the rules of evidence, the rules of criminal procedure, uh, and not um, and generally the rules of ethics, so that the lawyers act like lawyers. Uh, and uh, I think it worked out pretty well for me. So.
2: Uh, great lawyers tell juries a story. Uh, how has your storytelling experience informed your courtroom work? Um,
0: you know, I, it's it's an odd thing, but, you know, I was a writing fellow at Stanford <clears throat> before I went to law school, kind of a struggling novelist. And I found it was more the reverse, that trying cases – taught me a lot about writing novels and particularly how to address a popular audience. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it goes both ways. Um, and certainly, uh, knowing what the elements are of a good story is important, uh, both in speaking to a jury and also, by the way, in writing a brief, um, you know, being able to craft a statement of facts that's inherently interesting and dramatic uh, can help a lot in keeping a judge's attention.
2: That, that's really interesting that uh, trying cases uh, help make you think a little bit more about how to tell a story. Because when you're trying a case, unlike sitting at a word processor, you actually have an audience there. You have the jury there that presumably is reacting to, to what you're saying to them.
0: Right. But, you know, um, first of all, I I was of the view that um, an, an artist in any medium ought to try to create universals. And I was defining myself against somebody like Ezra Pound, who said that, you know, the artist is the poet is the antenna of the race. And thus, he will never be understood by the bullet headed many. And um, I just thought that that was bunk. And, uh, you know, on my side, I had people like Tolstoy who said that the idea that, you know, that great art can't be understood by uh, everyone is the same as saying great food can't be eaten and enjoyed by everyone. And uh, so in approaching a popular audience in the, Courtroom, and that's what I, I literally dragged twelve people in off the street. Um, you know, I just learned a lot, uh, and uh, you know, I, I learned uh, that sometimes the tried and true, even though I I might regard it as cliche that um, it's okay if it if it if it works, if it holds audience interest. And That was sort of. Job one uh, when you're trying a case is to make sure nobody goes to sleep in the jury box. And the same thing is true when you're writing a novel, you know, you, you do not want to lose your audience through boredom.
2: You're primarily known for your, your fiction, but I thought it was interesting after going to the Stanford fiction program, your first book was nonfiction, the story yeah. of the first year at Harvard law school. What led you to write that rather than fiction?
0: You know, my, my life, especially the early years, was a series of glorious accidents. So I, um, uh, I almost, I went to law school almost by accident. Um, I just, I wasn't going to support myself as a novelist and I was looking for another way to make a living. And, um, ultimately I realized I was more interested in law than, uh, for example, you know, English criticism, Uh So uh, I made the decision to go to law school and I had a somewhat imperious literary agent in those days and uh, she really scared the hell out of me. (laughs) So when I wrote her to tell her I was going to law school, I got to the middle of the letter and I thought, God, this sounds really lame uh, because my hope and intention was to continue to write. So I sort of in the middle of the letter ginned up this idea for a book, which closely read, I wasn't really proposing to write myself, but I was just telling her that there wasn't a good nonfiction book about the daily life of a law student. And um, she, we, we never really, we always talk past each other. So um, I'm living in San Francisco at that point. And about two weeks later, I get a letter from her, but it's fat, and I'm usually the letters she sent me were projections of one of the novels I'd written. They were thin, so it was just a cover letter and the the nice note from whatever editor she'd sent. This was thick, and I open up the envelope. Here's a book contract to write this book. I sort of half proposed in the middle of my letter. She'd gone out to lunch with this with an editor named Ned Chase. Now a blessed memory. Chevy Chase's father, Oh, really? uh, ironically, and uh, equally wacky. And uh, Ned had looked at the letter and said, it's a great idea for a book. I'll write a contract. Uh, And literally reached into his briefcase and uh, wrote out the, you know, the the contract on 1L is handwritten. So um, that's how it happened. And I'm standing on the stairs of my apartment in San Francisco. I could have papered the walls in the place with rejection slips. And uh, and here I am having decided to go to law school and it's become the great break of my literary career. And uh, and that proved to become truer and truer as the years went on.
2: I got to say, Scott, you said you went to law school almost by accident. I don't think anyone ends up at Harvard Law School by accident.
0: Well, I mean, it was, it was not... I really didn't know why I decided, okay, I'll take the LSAT. And, you know, I would um, lay in bed at night with the LSAT prep book. And I'd read the questions to my ex-wife and, you know, she would, she'd give me her guess. And I go, no, I don't, I don't think that's the right answer. And, you know, we, but I wasn't taking it very seriously. And had I not done better on the LSAT than I had ever done on any other standardized test, um, I would have, you know, just, you know, blown off the idea, but, um, it was clear then, well, okay, I can go to a good law school. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I, there were no other job prospects that I wanted to pursue. So, okay, I'll go to law school. I was very interested in the law, um, you know,
2: Why? It, what would about the law interested you? You
0: know, it really um, plucked at a core, just very, very deep within me. Um, the questions about the legitimate uses of power, which are at the heart of the law, the defining what is wrong or evil, defining what is fair, how to create rules that are definite but still supple enough to encompass the extraordinary diversity of experience. The whole enterprise just seemed fascinating to me and still does, by the way. It really does.
2: I'm speaking with novelist and attorney Scott Turow. The Last Trial is his most recent book. You mentioned Tolstoy. I'm wondering what other fiction writers have influenced you.
0: Well, um, it's a long, long list, obviously. Um, you know, I, I would name three others, um, Dickens, uh, because of his, uh, fearlessness about plot. There had to be plot in a Dickens' novel, and he was never embarrassed about it. Uh, and the way he could be artful, even as he was delivering, um, you know, the twists and turns of a highly plotted story, uh, that, that was an important lesson. Uh, Graham Greene, because he really was a literary master uh, writing suspense. And then, you know, the n- native Chicago Chicagoan, uh, Saul Bellow, Really came literally from the same world as my father. Um, they had been in in high school together, and I I didn't um, I didn't even remember it till both of them were dead. My father harumphing around the house about Solomon Bellows. Solomon Bellows. He was upset when Herzog became you know this great literary sensation, and you know he was. I think saying, you know, I knew that guy when he was Solomon Bellows, not, you know, Saul Bellow.
2: Well, Saul Bellow was of course famous for recycling his personal life into his fiction. Did your father ever make it into any of his books? No, I don't, I
0: don't, I don't think my, um, my dad was friendlier with, uh, Bellows best friend in high school, a guy named Sidney Harris, who was ultimately a columnist for the Chicago daily news. Um, But I I don't think he knew Bellow all that well. Your
2: um, book, Presumed Innocent, um, was a bestseller. It became a hit film for Harrison Ford back in 1990. How did that alter the arc of your career to have such a huge hit as a book and then as a movie?
0: You know, again, I use the term glorious accident. And, you know, I wrote Presumed Innocent on the morning commuter train. I then took a summer away from the law to finish it as I was going from the U S attorney's office in Chicago into private practice. Uh, And I really wasn't sure whether I'd even be able to sell the book. I was afraid that it might be too literary for the mystery crowd uh, and that, uh, you know, but too much of a mystery to be taken as any kind of a, you know, quote unquote, good book. Uh, And, you know, all of a sudden sent the book to New York. My agent was very understated, not the, not the old one, the new one, uh, who's still my agent, Gail Hockman. Uh, and, you know, I came back from trying a case in Oregon. And one Monday, and all of a sudden, there were all these offers to, to publish this book. And then three weeks later, there were offers from the movies. Uh, and again, I go back to what I said before. Um, I had a record of complete failure as a novelist up until that point. And, you know, all of a sudden, Gail is selling rights to this unpublished novel in all corners of the world because it's going to be a movie, supposedly. Uh, There were moments, and I, there were moments I remember walking into my house and putting down my briefcase and thinking about all of this and I I'd solved the problem. I had just gone mad. It was like that old short story, the the man who would be king. And you know, I had I was just imagining all of this. I'd sort of had a little psychotic break in which I was suddenly destined to become a best selling novelist. Uh it was so far from what I expected. Uh
2: I'm speaking with novelist and, and attorney, Scott Turow, and I want to talk a, a little bit more about your work as an attorney coming up, but I'm curious about over the years, how these two careers have uh, fed one another. Uh, we talked a little bit about influence on your courtroom work and also on your writing from, from the other things, but most people would be pretty happy with uh, being a best-selling fiction writer or being a, a, an attorney. Uh, you you've seem to have combined them both. Did Did one nourish the other? Did one build on the other to keep it to keep both of them from overwhelming you um
0: i i think the the last words that you used to keep anything from overwhelming me uh, are really important um because you know when i was a full-time writer back at stanford um i, I wasn't well settled emotionally and uh you know i young man growing up, but uh, I was almost afraid to go back to that. Uh, And the other thing was that I had really taken my measure well when I went to law school. I just thought it was fascinating. So, I mean, if you had asked me after Presumed Innocent came out, I probably would have said, well, I'm just going to practice a few more years, but uh, I'm interested in learning what civil litigation is like. Eventually, I learned that and said, I'll never do another civil case. But, uh, and, you know, I was part of a community of, uh, you know, prosecutors and defense lawyers. I enjoyed being part of that community. Those people are still my dear friends. uh, And I didn't want to withdraw from it. And again, as you suggest, it wasn't the particulars of any case that I was afraid of giving up, but it's the milieu of the law by itself that really um, has provided, you know, inspiration.
2: Was more fun for you to hang out with, a room full of lawyers or a room full of novelists?
0: It depends on who in each case. Um, You know, there are bores and pedants in both worlds and incredibly lively minds, um, you know, wonderfully amusing in both worlds.
2: Along with writing fiction and practicing law, um, uh, you've written about Donald Trump's legal problems, which are kind of coming to the fore right now. Uh, Conventional wisdom is that impeachment will fail. Um, Do you think that it will?
0: Um, Yeah, it looks, I mean, it it will fail for partisan reasons. It will fail because the argument that uh, impeachment is not an appropriate vehicle for uh, a former president um, is I mean my wife got mad at me when I said last night that I think it's a credible argument. Uh, you know, the precedent in the Senate is that, yeah, you can impeach somebody after they've left office, but that doesn't mean that it's um, what the framers of the Constitution actually intended. So I think that legal argument will matter and I, I am frustrated because uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment gives another remedy that, um, you know, if the Democrats really wanted to have their pound of flesh, it provides that anybody who's involved in insurrection or rebellion against the United States or gives aid or comfort to the, to the rebels uh, cannot serve again in public office under the United States. And It's clear from the drafting that nobody was thinking that the president was going to be the person against whom uh, that provision was applied. But, it, you know, word by word, it, 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 it suits the situation and why the Democrats wanted to have a sideshow of another failed impeachment when by majority vote they could have passed this resolution in the House and then maybe even gotten the 60 votes in the Senate. Um, I don't know why they did that, and you know, derailed the Biden agenda at the same time.
2: Uh, by the way, if you're listening to our conversation, and you've got a question. There's a Q and A section down at the bottom there. Just put your question in and and uh, pose it to Scott Turow. Uh The impeachment is not the end of Donald Trump's legal issues. He's always also being investigated <laughs> by New York State for financial irregularities. There's a lot of court cases kind of piling up behind him. Um I, I don't know how closely you follow them, but where do you think is the biggest jeopardy for the ex president
0: i'm I am not convinced Ross that we know everything about Donald Trump's nefarious affairs, and um, we don't really know much about his relationship with the russians there There's big question marks there. We do not know in particular um, how he may have enriched himself while he was president. And uh, I i mean, I have a very dim view of the former president, which probably is pretty well shared in this audience. But um, well, can you I separate
2: guess, yourself from your personal view about him? And legally, if you were his attorney, what would you most be worried about?
0: Um. I think the insurance fraud case in New York Uh looks pretty solid. I would be scouring his affairs to figure out um, whether he did, in fact, enrich himself while he was president. Uh, I suspect that will prove to be the case. We already know about what he did with the inaugural committee. And I suspect there'll be a lot more of that coming to light. Um, You know, the tax stuff. I, I I don't know as much about that. I think it's, the, the tax returns have always been an issue because of the light they shed on his financial life. And also because being who he is, he undoubtedly made claims on his tax returns that were, he contradicted in other documents.
2: He still has tens of millions of followers who believe everything he says, no matter how improbable or, or untrue. If it gets to that point, would that make it hard to put together a jury in a case involving Donald Trump?
0: Well, uh, unfortunately for Donald Trump, the places that he is likely to be indicted are Washington, D.C. or New York City. And it's possible that even in those venues, uh, there'd be a person or two who would hang the jury because they're just they love Donald Trump. And uh, but. Those are tough places for him to be on trial. Now, if he gets to move venue to upstate New York, if Sivance or his successor indicts him, uh, yeah, then you know he would he would have a chance of a jury deadlocking. Uh, and you're right; it might be true anywhere, but uh, venue is very much against him.
2: You were a, a pro bono defense attorney for over 30 years, and I'm wondering what kind of cases attracted you to want to represent a defendant for free?
0: Well, um, after Presumed Innocent, uh, and I signed a contract for the burden of proof, and I realized, well, I'm no longer going to be dependent on the law uh, for my principal living. And given that, uh, I want to spend more time writing. And the other thing I want to do is what the young man who went to law school would have expected of himself in these circumstances. And I began going down to 26th in California, the the state courthouse in Chicago and, uh, and picking up cases there. And
1: uh, I knew nothing
0: about state court. It's was a frightening and horrifying world as far as I was concerned. Um, just because a lot of the crimes were of a nature that people don't talk about much. Uh, but, um, you know, and that's how I began and it didn't take very long before, uh, you know, I was being assigned to serious felony cases, you know, aggravated arson and, and then, you know, murder case, you know, we tried a murder case, It was frightening to me, again, because uh, this was a case where uh, our client had been indicted without ever being mentioned in the grand jury. And the quality of justice in the circuit court of Cook County was such that you could stand in front of a judge and say, your honor, the Constitution guarantees the right to indictment by a grand jury. The grand jury can't indict you if there is literally no evidence there. Your name has never been mentioned. And the judge looked down and said, just put it on, meaning, put, put, you know, try the case. Um, so uh, I, I began to learn what, um, you know, retail justice is like for most criminal defendants in the United States, which is it doesn't uh, revolve around the niceties, Uh, That certainly, I mean, in, in federal court where I came from, to say the least, there wouldn't, there was not a judge in the building who wouldn't have thrown the case out upon finding that the defendant was never mentioned in the grand jury. But it's not, that's not how it is when you're processing case after case after case in the state courts in a big city like Chicago.
2: One of our uh, viewers is asking about Sandy Stern, the attorney who's the central character in your latest book and a a character in many of your other books. Sandy Stern says, given his background, he would never feel comfortable being a prosecutor. You were initially a prosecutor after law school. What drew you to the prosecution instead of being a defense attorney?
0: Well, what I would tell Stern um, is that there is no more powerful person in the criminal justice system than the prosecutor. Uh, he he or she decides uh, whether the defendant is going to get charged uh, and then tries the case uh, and has a lot to do that way as well with the defendant's fate. So, uh, and I came to appreciate that early on. And part of wanting to be a prosecutor is just learning to try cases. Um, And, you know, if you if I went into private practice, nobody would have let me anywhere near a courtroom for, for years, and uh, you know I was tired of sort of having sidetracked my life, so uh, I wanted to do it, and I just perceived, especially the U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago, as being the conscience of that community. Uh, I grew up in a very corrupt Chicago, uh, where. I once asked my grandfather why he'd been swindled, why he didn't go to court. And he looked at me, he says, poor man like me. He says, I can't afford to buy a judge. So um, I didn't see prosecutors um, in the same way that Stern did. Stern is someone who came of age in Argentina uh, and watched the might of the government uh, being horribly misapplied. And so... That's why, based on who he is, he says he could never be a prosecutor.
2: Setting aside the cost of buying a judge, can a person without means get justice in America?
0: It's a lot easier to get justice with means. You know, there's a saying uh, that you hear when you're doing capital work, as I as I did eventually. That you know, there ain't no rich men on death row, and. Um, you know, there are lots of wonderful, committed um, legal aid uh, and pro bono advocates. So, yes, um, you know, poor people can get justice and often do. But, you know, the number of inequities and wrongs uh, that are committed against the poor is much larger than the number that reached the courtrooms.
2: Are there any systematic changes you think could change that, could provide more equity for people without means in a courtroom in the court of law?
0: Well, you know the the much broader requirements for lawyers to do pro bono work um, would would be a uh, would be a good place to start on the criminal side. uh, I have never ever understood why the budget per case in the U S attorney's office is so much greater than in the federal defender's office. Uh, And, you know, I, I, I think that's a legitimate beef to come in and say, look, we need investigators too. They've got the FBI. The budget of our office is a fraction of theirs this is this is just not right you know and uh seems self, process, it,
2: but... it, it seems self-evident why is it not been addressed um
0: I, it's not for lack of trying um but and the, the answer that the courts are basically giving is well it's always been that way hmm. so uh, and that you can't compare the job of the prosecution, which is you know sorting through all the available evidence uh, and putting on a case, <clears throat> with that of the defense lawyer, that's who's you know working against a smaller, more finite universe. But um, there's a huge resource difference between the U.S. Attorney's Office and the Federal Defender's Office. And I, you know, and I would say this, and I said it while I was a prosecutor. It just ain't right.
2: Mm-hmm. Speaking with novelist and attorney Scott Turow, The Last Trial is his most recent book. If you've got a question, just jump down there in the Q&A. Um, as I mentioned, you've been a pro bono defense attorney for over 30 years. You also a, a commercial worked on commercial cases. Do potential jurists, when you face a jury, get asked if they've read Scott Turow books?
0: You know, um, it happened. It's happened once, and you know, it's wonderful to be a best-selling novelist, but um, you shouldn't have fantasies about how many people in this country are reading books. And, uh, you know, if I was my friend Stephen King, then that that might be problematic. Probably, you know, one in four, or one in three people on the jury would know Steve's name. But in my case, you know, I, I I once told Steve, you know, my my mother used to think I was a famous novelist, but I don't anymore now that I hang around with you. <laughs> and and uh, somebody once said to me that traveling with Steve is like traveling with a beetle. Um, and, you know, he's a genius. His, his success is is hard-earned and well-deserved.
2: And such a wonderful writer about writing.
0: That, oh, the, absolutely. The
2: volume he published is just wonderful to read.
0: Yeah, it's a great uh, book.
2: One I mean, a rare agreement between former President Trump and the Democrats was around sentencing reform measures that were meant to relieve some of the racial disparities in the justice system. Do you think that measure went far enough? And if not, what else needs to be done to fix that part of the, the justice system?
0: It, it, you know, it didn't go far enough. Um, and, you, you know... Sentencing guidelines were well intended and it is not fair for somebody to commit very similar offenses in Chicago and Alabama and get very different sentences. And that was what was happening Uh, because, you know, there were hanging judges down in Alabama and, uh, you know, bleeding heart liberals in Chicago. Uh, So there is some point. To sentencing guidelines, but you just can't take the discretion out of sentencing. And, you know, I always point to and, and Stern points to in the last trial um, the securities laws, which, in which, you know, they're basically crimes committed by rich people, insider trading um, and the like. Uh, and, You know, you can be in receipt of inside information and the law has all of these exacting requirements about how uh, how you can still be not guilty, even though you're in receipt of it and you use it. Whereas if you're in receipt of a stolen treasury check, the law presumes that, you know, it's stolen. You don't have to stand on six sets of shoulders in order to prove that the defendant knew it was confidential information and that uh you know and intended to profit from it and to violate a confidential relationship all of the requirements that have been piled on um you know the the initial law in this area so yeah it's it's very you're never going to totally equalize uh, these things but obviously the law is the last place where you ought to give up that struggle
2: I don't know how familiar you are with uh, the law in other countries, but are there other systems that you think might do a better job of providing uh, uh, racial equity in, in courts and also financial equity in courts?
0: You know, Ross, I, I I know little bits about the legal system in the countries that I've been in, uh, but I don't know enough to answer okay. that question knowledgeably.
2: I, I want to turn to uh, an issue that's um You've been very active on. You and John Grisham are longtime opponents of the death penalty. You've worked yeah. a lot on that. In his final days in office, Donald Trump pushed forward executions of people on federal charges. Where do you think we are right now as a country when it comes to the death penalty?
0: Well, if you stand back, the pace of executions has slowed everywhere, even, even in Texas, um, where you know, more than a third of the people who've been executed in the United States since the brief period when the death penalty was un- unconstitutional. Um, so we're making headway, and um, m- my argument about the death penalty is pretty simple: it doesn't work, and it doesn't it doesn't deliver any of the things that people want it to deliver. It do- It's not a deterrent. And it, it doesn't serve as the kind of moral clarion call that people believe it will. Some people think, you know, some crimes are so horrible that the uh, defendant has to pay the ultimate price. But, you know, your, your state of, uh, of Washington is one I often point to because uh, there was a guy I think referred to as the Green River murderer.
2: I was just going to mention that.
0: You know, and it killed 47 or 48 women. Uh, and uh, because they wanted to know where those bodies were buried, for the sake of the victim families, uh, he was able to negotiate a deal where he was spared uh, the death penalty. And as I said publicly at the time, well, I can't believe any prosecutor in the state of Washington is ever going to ask for the death penalty again, because. You, how, how can you do that with having any sense of proportion? Man kills 48 people and he doesn't get death. I don't care how odious the crime is. Uh, how can it possibly compare? Uh, and that's the way that system works. Uh, it doesn't give you any kind of great overarching sense of, you know, of ultimates or morality. When you get into the sort of, you know, the, the, the ragged bone shop of the way you know, death is meted out in this country, it ain't fair.
2: But as you're well aware, uh, some people are not convinced. They would say, yes, they, it was unfair that the Green River Killer did not face execution, but that doesn't mean we should not be applying the death penalty in cases that are particularly heinous. It's They would say, you say it doesn't work, they would say it works in the sense that there's some justice meted out for a horrendous crime. I mean, How do you respond to that argument?
0: Well, First of all, I think that's a fair argument. Um, and uh, But I say to the person who believes that, sit down and just read the first degree murder cases in your own state and see if the crime that you want to give the death penalty for is so heinous in comparison to crimes that were pled out for life or even a term of years. Um, And and if your point is to make this firm moral statement in the face of a heinous crime, then how do you reconcile yourself to the fact that equally heinous crimes haven't resulted in execution or the death sentence? So um, that's my answer. I don't think somebody who says an eye for an eye is, uh, you know, is is being primitive I think revenge is a natural human impulse. And if we didn't believe in revenge, we wouldn't put people in prison. So I don't think you can say um, just, you know, that an eye for an eye is an old fashioned morality. I get it. If, if the system really delivered a consistent sense of justice, it would be fine, but it doesn't.
2: You think anti-death penalty advocates like yourself are, are winning on this?
0: I think we're winning slowly. Yeah. I think, you know, we're regarded as uh, inhuman baboons by most of the civilized world because we execute Uh, and the public is more and more aware of how many people have been convicted of heinous crimes who are not guilty uh, and, you wouldn't even be aware of that if they'd been put to death because there would be no advocate trying to free them. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I think, you know, the people in the state of Illinois thought they were fiercely in favor of the death penalty and George Ryan commuted everybody on death row and, you know, the pace of death penalty cases slowed down. And finally, and you know, these are conscientious, um, lawmakers, but conservatives said, well, you know, I don't hear it, but my phone isn't ringing off the hook. I'm not sure we really do need this. Uh, and so the death penalty was repealed in the state of Illinois. Uh, and again, nobody seems to be suffering for that fact. There will be cases where um, you will really grit your teeth that the defendant isn't going to be executed. and. You have to face that, Um, you know, horrible crimes against children or whatever it is, or a mass killing of 30 people. Um, But overall, we're a better society without it. Uh,
2: Kathy Gill would like to hear you talk a little bit more about uh, President Trump and his legal issues. Uh, She asks, do you think uh, this is legitimately a problem for him, these many cases we referred to a little bit earlier? Could he get convicted?
0: Yeah, could he, could I, he go I, to jail? I, I, you know, s- several years ago, I met, um, I met somebody who'd done a lot of business with the former president in New York. And, you know, and he, just, he said to me, you know, the guy's just a flat-out crook. He said, I don't think, and he said, and the, the, the stupid thing about becoming president is he's calling all this attention to himself. Uh, and his prediction was that he was going to end up in the penitentiary. Um, as I said, I I don't think we have seen the bottom of the well yet with Donald Trump. And um, I don't know if he will end up in prison. I do think he is in serious jeopardy of that on a number of fronts.
2: You haven't been as active in the courts uh, this past year during the COVID crisis, but I'm sure as a close follower of the justice system, you have some awareness of how that's affected the justice system. Oh, for I sure. Mean, you, you couldn't have a jury in a, in a jury room, could you, during this period?
0: Well, the, the, the Constitution guarantees in the Sixth Amendment the right to confront the witnesses against you. And that's always been interpreted as, a, as face-to-face. You've got to be in the same courtroom with the guy who's telling the jury about all the bad things you did. So um, it's it's very hard to do criminal cases right now, at least jury trials. Uh, And uh, you know, it's 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 probably been hard on defense lawyers. Um, And uh, there's going to be a tremendous backlog in the courts if we ever get covid behind us uh but yeah it's had it's had an effect now i have a friend who tried a um uh, a case down in san francisco and everybody was in a plexiglass box hmm. uh in the in the courtroom so it, it can be done but it's a lot of money to retrofit the, the courtrooms to do that
2: and juries are actually there are juries in place even though yeah, in
0: that case there was hmm. You know, But each juror was sealed off in you know, his, his, own, his, his or her own plastic compartment.
2: Are there cases in which people are, are incarcerated and unable to get a speedy trial because of these slowdowns? Or is it actually getting people kicked out? I know in some cases, just because of concerns about COVID, people are being let out of prison. But is it just the slowdown in the justice system also kicking people out?
0: Well, there are exceptions in most of the speedy trial acts, whether they're state or federal. Uh, you know, for exigent circumstances, and God knows this is one. So I don't think by itself um, that will cause people to be freed. What will happen, of course, is that people will make constitutional claims once they are put to trial saying, oh, so much time has passed. I, I lost, you know, the opportunity to get all of this evidence been tried when i should have been tried you know my my aunt tilly was still alive she was going to come in and give give an alibi testimony for me so you know they'll 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 be some of it and most of it will fall on deaf ears
2: it's kind of just curious in these difficult times everybody's trying to eke out uh, some joy in some corner of, of their lives uh, you're a uh, a grandparent so there's something coming your way that way but I'm kind, of, I'm kind of wondering what else you've been doing kind of over the last year when we've got this overlay of pandemic and politics that's been really oppressing folks where, where you've been finding your joy
0: well um for those that don't regard it as a form of masochism i do play golf so uh good walks spoiled i'm sorry <laughs> yeah, right uh i can't get my wife to understand the game she's too good an athlete and she just doesn't understand why she would dedicate herself to a sport at which most of the time you walk off the course feeling that you've failed um and uh so you know because we've been down in florida we've been able to be outside uh and that of course has been pleasurable um but you know most of it is like What everybody else has experienced. I found the early months of the pandemic, notwithstanding my expectations that, oh, this is going to be a great time to write, um, I found that I, like um, many other Americans, was in a state of constant low-level anxiety that really made it hard for me to concentrate on anything else other than doom-scrolling, and looking at the, you know, statistics in all 50 states and um, trying to figure out what was happening. And uh, so, I mean, eventually I settled down and settled in. We all got used to living this way, but I can't say on the 17th of February, I'm getting my second shot. And um, because Florida's vaccinating people over 65. And uh, that means around the 1st of March, I'll be able to walk down the street with newfound confidence and uh you know i won't won't change any of my behavior but i think the anxiety level has just got to be different
2: i got my first shot today i'm getting my second on the 28th of february and i've been thinking a lot about how my mindset will change after that my wife unfortunately isn't going to be 65 it's also 65 here in washington state until uh, the end of May. So there'll be a little lag time there.
0: Yeah. My, my, my wife is quite a bit younger and uh, she's not close. So it's really not going to make much difference in the way we live. But um, I mean, you know, from the experience of just getting the first shot that it's um, it's like, Oh, this will end. This will end. And uh, you know, and I, I believe the administration is, hellbound and determined to get a huge number of people vaccinated as quickly as possible.
2: And going forward, this has been such an overwhelming experience over the last year, the the pandemic in particular, the politics and everything. I'm just wondering someone perhaps yourself sitting down to write their next book, unless it's going to be a historic novel, does it somehow, are you somehow compelled as a fiction writer to include something of the experience of this pandemic?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm writing now and the book presumes that it's a a year or two in the future. And the, the character does make occasional references to coronavirus and the pandemic and walks into a restaurant and just thinking that, you know, well, this guy lost his job and he was a restaurant worker. But so many restaurants in this town closed. There was so much vacant space, so much lending a possible that, you know, it ended up improving his life because he's what now running a successful restaurant. All of this is passing by in two sentences. But no, I don't, certainly don't think you'll be ever be able to write anything that's contemporary that doesn't hark back to this period.
2: Hey, Scott, Rowe, it's really been a pleasure talking to you. I've enjoyed our conversation tremendously. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us.
0: Yeah, Ross, you were great, so thank you. You're very skilled at this, and I appreciate it.
1: The UW Bookstore presented Scott Turow in conversation with KUOW's Ross Reynolds on February 4th. To find this event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, KUOW.org slash speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.